Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality by diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. In the second season of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we focus on climate justice. As the climate crisis is accelerating and inequalities are on the rise, we ask, how can we get urgent climate action that is also just? Should we be taken to the streets or lobby the halls of power? And how to come together across movements to make sure all voices are heard? My name is Barra van Passe, and I'm happy you joined us for the fifth and final episode of this series. Today, you get to meet our producer, Elizabeth Meina, as we reflect on what we've heard so far. And we ask two amazing climate justice veterans what action they think is most needed today. This and more in today's episode of the People vs. Inequality podcast. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversations. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Barbara. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be on the other side of this conversation. Normally, I'm in the background, just putting it all together. So it's good to be a main character for once. That's great. And it actually <laughs> took some convincing to get you on board. Yeah, right. But it's 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 really nice to have you here because, I mean, we do so much of, of the thinking together. We have many conversations around the topics we're looking at in this podcast. And uh, it feels only right to have a moment to reflect with you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today. <laughs> so, yeah, let's dive into it. I think it's so amazing that we had another four amazing women on this series so far. Yes, we did. So for our first episode, we had Elizabeth Wasuti, a fellow Kenyan who talks about climate activism and tree planting. And for the second episode, we had Tessa Khan, who spoke about strategic litigation and movement building for a just and fossil free UK. And then in our third episode, we talked to Vicky Taulikorpus, right, who brought in an indigenous perspective on climate justice and indigenous peoples defending their rights and the planet. And the last episode was also interesting to me because I got a chance to go back to my home country of the Netherlands and explore the climate movements and the role of civil disobedience and arts with uh, Bolivian Dutch activist Chihiro Geusenbroek. I really hope that listeners have heard some of this, but even for those that haven't, I think it would be nice to share maybe what, yeah, I'm curious to hear from you what struck you in the conversations we had, what really stood out. First of all, to just say that, as always, I'm very proud of the fact that we, we're always very conscious of getting speakers who come from all over the world and who represent such different views and ways of doing work. The things that stood out for me with this series and with our guest speakers was, first of all, I'm very proud of their push for the personal responsibility of each individual, really centered in some aspects around the idea of civic action. Tessa was very clear about the fact that as citizens, and especially for citizens, the global north, how they can then help their global south counterparts is by holding their politicians accountable and their political leadership to do the right thing, to put in place the right policies that will ensure that whether it's funding or taking up responsibility to ensure that they take up their responsibility towards just climate action. As someone from the Global North, it's been also painful to see those 
almost ridiculous conversations around charcoal or behavioral changes that might be needed elsewhere when there's really a big responsibility on the global north. And, and I think you're absolutely right. They laid that out. And then they didn't make that into an impossible system, you yes. know, change item, but they really showed that we have agency to do that. Exactly. Yeah. It's very practical. It's very actionable. And like the intended consequences and effects like are very clear. The concept of nurture and love and care, which many of the, or none of the speakers was very explicitly feminist, but to me, those are very feminist concepts. And they were so obvious in all of the conversations. And it really raises a lot of questions. And and they had good ideas on that as well, on how to nurture care for nature, but also for the others, how to build relationships that are transformational. Mm -hmm. And uh, I take away a lot of ideas on moving that forward. And I guess that's also something that's very specific to indigenous communities and indigenous peoples that have always had that very holistic and caring approach to to their environment. I think it's also important for us to, as you said, continue to do that connection to love, to nurturing, to empathy, and use it to escalate it into the big things. Because maybe that's the thing that's missing in how we interact with power that it's very exactly transactional like at the cost of everyone else I do not care for my neighbor I do not care for my community at large of course I'm a passionate for strategy then we get to how to bring that about and throughout the series there was a lot of talk around inside outside strategies on both resistance and dialogue And also on getting people on board and learning from history how to build movements. And uh, I'm very excited that today we will be speaking to, or we will be hearing from two amazing climate justice veterans who really have a lot of ideas and experience on these issues. And they will help us dive a little bit deeper even into some of these questions. Today we will have Tasneem Esop, who is the director of Khan International one of the biggest global climate networks and uh, a very relevant one added uh, as they build coalitions with over 1,500 organizations across the globe. And uh, Tasneem started out as an anti-apartheid activist and she served as a provincial minister in South Africa as well. So she'll really be able to touch upon these inside-outside questions as well as the coalition building. And then we also have Farhana Yamin, uh, who's a renowned environmental lawyer that advises climate vulnerable countries and helped shape the Paris Declaration, only to decide then that she would become a rebel and glued herself to the Shell headquarters in London. So this is exciting. And both really challenged the way, not only where we're at with climate justice and that more needs to happen, but also the way that many in the space have been working from the Global North governments, but also the NGOs. And they give very specific examples of what can be done for radical inclusion and transforming power. Because I think if we've learned one thing, right, Elizabeth, is that that's what it's ultimately about. I agree. So let's hear what Tasneem and Farhana have to say. Yes, let's do that. We start with Tasneem. So welcome. Thank you very much, Barbara. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're very happy to have you as you are leading one of the most, I would say, relevant networks at the moment. But you also have a long history of, of activism for social and environmental justice, coming all the way from the anti-apartheid movements to your work within government, within the system, political system, let's say, and your leading roles in, in uh, global environmental organizations and networks. So I think that experience and, and perspective will be really useful for, 
what we'll be discussing today. So I want to start with that very big question to you. I mean, where do you feel we are today and what are the key steps ahead for getting there, for getting true climate justice? So Barbara, you're absolutely right. I mean, climate change is clearly on the agenda, more so than ever before. I think that that, of course, it was going to be impossible to ignore the fact that we are living through a climate crisis. So certainly it's on the agenda. The Paris Agreement, of course, helped keep it on the agenda. But that's where it stops, really. Climate is on the agenda. It is on everybody's lips, mostly in terms of political leaders. But it's not translating into the kind of action that we need not on reducing emissions, not on financing. And certainly now, just given that state of affairs, you know that we are living through an era of climate impacts. And it's just going to get worse. The science is clear. As we are speaking to each other now, you will know the IPCC is currently, or governments are busy approving the report on climate impacts. And we suspect it's just going to be another dire warning. So there's no funding for this, for the kind of losses and damages that people are experiencing right now. Again, across the world, but more so in the global south, in developing countries who just don't have the capacity to recover. Yeah. Right? So for me, yes, great that it's all on everybody's agenda. We don't want it to end there. We want action, actually. And this is something that also really, I mean, came out very strongly in my conversations with Elizabeth Wathuti, for example, who obviously made this speech asking leaders to really listen, to feel the pain of people already facing the consequences. And being someone from the global north, it's heartbreaking and it makes me really angry. That pain is, I don't think it's being felt. And I guess one of the big questions, and our guests have also spoken to that, is I mean, how to make sure that pain is being felt or at least some sort of sense of responsibility or moral leadership. I think, you know, the one thing that should make us all really, really worried, you know, global south, global north, and especially citizens in the global north who really care for humanity. The fact that global north governments could do what they did during this pandemic should have shocked everybody, all citizens in the global north. So that inequality and then that is obviously linked to the injustice that we're living through is reflected both in the global north and in the global south. So we are not being alarmist people from the global south when they raise their concerns, when they plead, and in turn, when they are not being heard, when they get angry. It's not based on, you know, some kind of alarmist fairy tale. We're living through it. Now, this is what should concern us. This was a global pandemic. The crisis, the climate crisis, is a global crisis. We're experiencing the same thing. Rich nations are able to adapt, to build the resilience that they need, to put in infrastructure, and when there's disaster, to be able to recover. In a global crisis, therefore, 
it is our assumption that the rich nations are just willing to sacrifice the lives of people living in the global south. They're willing to sacrifice it. We're dispensable, essentially. So that should get global north citizens, I would have thought, really worried that global north citizens would have been on the streets protesting their governments, like we saw during the peace movements, anti-war movements, like we saw during the anti-apartheid struggle. We had solidarity from our compatriots, from our fellow brothers and sisters in the global north. But we're not witnessing that level of anger. I also asked Farhana where she thinks we're at with climate justice. So welcome, Farhana. Thank you for joining us on the People vs. Inequality podcast. Thank you for having me. Climate justice is at that tipping point in terms of being the main narrative. And I think we got a very strong sense of that at COP26 in Glasgow, where we didn't land enough of that narrative in the substance and in the language. But actually, there was huge understandings and shifts in the way people are seeing things. Even negotiators and high-level diplomats and ministers are all invoking an understanding that inequalities, and especially historic inequalities and systems of injustice, as opposed to one-off policies, are what's really important and may have been neglected. We may have neglected those in terms of maybe prioritizing markets and prioritizing technology and prioritizing individual policies like cap and trade and emissions trading, for example. So I feel that there's a massive increase in understanding and some of that predated COVID and some of that has been propelled and uh, that understanding has been enriched by our experience of living through now almost two years of uh, a global recession caused by a virus which has shown very clearly to people who's vulnerable. So all of these issues, I think, have helped us and deepened our understanding of also inequalities that previously only a handful of people were campaigning around. So that gives me much more comfort in terms of the trajectory of our collective travel to more as a more green and just planet. I feel actually we we are in a better place. I think that that's Um, where we are now. And I think globally, the movements for gender justice and the movements for racial justice in particular, but also for disability rights, has really taken a hold. The thing of leaving no one behind, it's a real thing. You know, it's it's a real impulse, a real dynamic, and it's slowly informing the way in which every organization and structure is changing to be more diverse, to be more inclusive, to be more sensitive to differing people's needs. And that comes from a recognition that actually our existing economic systems did not serve everybody equally. There was no level playing field and trying to level up is great, but actually recognizing that the field is so uneven and the historic discriminations based on past norms, based on past injustices like 400 years ago, when capitalism really took root and its DNA was formed, you know, women weren't recognized as people. Children absolutely had no rights in any culture, virtually. Indigenous people 
people were seen as savages or backwards. Most black and brown people were not considered people. So the DNA of capitalism itself, its logic, who it values, literally in terms of worth, is based on a very skewed understanding of our relationship to the natural world, of our relationship to each other. And I see climate change as and climate justice as part of this much longer arc of a move towards justice, a move towards inclusion, a move now to recognising and giving rights to nature, as well as respecting the rights now that we all agree on them, of women, of black and brown people, of those who are neurodivergent, who have invisible disabilities, the disabilities. I mean, that is what I think is is at the heart of climate justice, is that recognition that we respect nature and value everyone. So we clearly have a mixed bag when it comes to climate justice. The lack of solidarity from the global north is problematic. At the same time, movements are increasingly aware, and Farhana mentions we're at a tipping point. I asked both of them, with all the experience that they have, what it is they think is most urgently needed to turn the tide for climate justice. So I often wonder why many global north civil society organizations working to address the climate crisis or working on other issues often would look outward. But at the same time, why are you not working at home? Why are you not building strong movements at home? Why are you not? getting to ordinary citizens in your countries in the North? That is a very important question to ask. Should our energy, wherever we are, whether you're in the global North or in the global South, not be about building people's power where you are at? Building in a very, it's long, it's not an easy road, but you literally have to be taking back and reclaiming the political space with people, ordinary people. What are ordinary people aspiring to? Do we know? Do we know what they want? We speak on behalf of people often. But are we engaging with ordinary citizens? Often we say, oh, poor people are not interested in the climate crisis. They're only interested in rubbish. That's nonsense. I'm sure when we go and work, engage, we're present in communities, we build We have to recapture that space. It's hard work. It's not sexy. It's not, you know, it's sexier to have, you know, yourself all over social media and get millions of likes. It's not sexy to be in the homes of ordinary citizens, weaning back the hearts and minds of people. And in that process, surely, when there is a huge and glaring injustice, whether at home or in the world, if you've done your work, those people will be side by side with you. In the past, we called that international solidarity. Yeah. It's a very important element of building people's power across the world and especially in a crisis. And so this takes hard work, Barbara. Mm. And, and often what I find is that, especially in civil society, we talk the language. It's similar to political leaders talking about climate. We talk the language of people's power. We talk the language of climate justice. We talk the language of movement building, but we're not doing it. Yeah, exactly. We're not really understanding what it means to do that work. We're not there, really. 
There are, there are social movements in the global. There are many I have so much who have been the pioneers of this work, have been consistently over time in the trenches with people doing that work. They remain invisible. They remain unfunded. They remain under-resourced because the big organizations are able to present themselves, market themselves, communicate what they do, but are they bringing about change? Yeah. Are they doing the hard work of bringing about change? And change can only happen through the power of people united and standing in solidarity across the world. So yeah, I think that's an important conversation to be had. And in turn, therefore, to achieve the kind of justice that we need can only happen through that way. I ask Farhana the same question on what she thinks is most needed now and what we can learn from her own path on where change happens. I guess that, that picture that I had in my head of politicians and our political systems being able to act if only the right information came mm. before them. I look back on it and think, gosh, I was so naive. You know, I thought armed with my science and law, you know, I would sort of write the best treaties. And I think it was naive to think that systems would change without resistance and people power and without protest. People in power do not give up power. They do not give up privilege. They do not change the status quo unless they feel a little bit in danger or that there's something really in it for them. That's when I did a lot of research as well into these movements that we often describe in very heroic terms and, and realize actually they had taken centuries, if not decades, to achieve their goal. You know, apartheid took centuries to dismantle. It's the effect of it is still there. The battle for gender equality is still ongoing. That makes me realize we need social change to happen. We need, and for that, we need movement building and visionaries, and we need to live our lives in the kind of communities that we are trying to create. And those, you know, you can't always create them with a with a legal pen, basically. You know, you need to act at all different, all different levels of society. And it's really our fundamental norms and principles that need shifting as well, part of, as part and parcel of the legislative changes, as well as well as, you know, obviously as a lawyer, I think the lawmaking process is fantastic, whether it's through parliaments or whether it's through the litigation process where the courts also make laws so obviously I'm very attracted to those methods but I over time I've come to realize that they're too slow and you can't expect transformational change from those unless you build the basis of that transformation elsewhere. So clearly organizing and building people power is key as also the previous episodes in this series showed but many organizations especially also in the global north I find might not actually have that experience in how to do that. I asked Asneem how we can learn from the experiences of social movements, especially in the global South, and what that would mean in practice, including for an organization like Khan. If you're not there, if you haven't been through that, then you would need to learn, right? How do you do this? This is not about organizing a march on the streets. Mm -hmm. It's a very different kettle of fish. It's a different way. It is really fundamentally being present with people on a consistent basis. Now, many of us don't do, uh, for example, my role, I'm sort of 
at a level now that I'm coordinating a very big civil society network. But I have understood, though, that therefore what you need, if you are such a big civil society network and you're present in over 130 countries, surely that means there's immense power. The potential for that means that our, what we call nodes, our geographically based organized hubs, if you want to call it that, should be on the ground. That's where it happens. So the work you do, of course, you're going to engage with government, do advocacy work, etc. But you have to be on the ground because, you know, let me be very clear. And we all know this. <laughs> you go meet with a government official. They'll welcome you in. They'll have a conversation. You leave because who, who are you representing, by the way? Right? If you don't have mm. that critical mass of people behind you, and politicians know that what you come with is that power, you're going to just have a con, you know, you have access. Did you have influence? Did you have power? So it's all connected. It's not a luxury to organize people. It's a must have. Mm. We go into the global space, into climate negotiations. And I agree with this point that you had explored with Vicky around the need for both the inside and the outside game. So let me get to the question you asked earlier about tactics. Our network has been known historically to be working on the inside, right? We've been yeah. in the UNFCCC process, etc., for years. It's not a reflection of the work that the wider network is doing. So again, it's a very reflective of those who want to work on the inside, very uh, engaged with policy work, that's important. You, you have to influence that decision-making in these multilateral processes. But what we weren't getting was connecting that process to the lives of ordinary people. There's not a one-size-fits-all tactic. For example, when you talk about litigation, very important tactic, very powerful. That's a tactic that we need to adopt. We talk about civil disobedience. We're talking about if you're mobilizing artists now around the issue. So you have to look at a full tool set of tactics and adopt the one that actually brings in the most power behind it. Hmm. So I'll give you a very concrete example. When we scanned the landscape ahead of COP26, we sort of looked at what was on the agenda and we realize that the one thing that we are not getting on the agenda is the issue of loss and damage. Which mm. is at the core you know, exactly. of the injustices. And we knew the UK presidency was like in their rhetoric, they were saying, yes, loss and damage, but we have been engaging. We knew they're not serious about it. And so we decided we can't allow governments to just set the agenda. We keep on expressing frustration about, oh, governments are setting the agenda. So, okay, it wasn't on the agenda, the formal agenda of COP26. And what we chose to do then is that this thing about building power, cohesion, coalitions, collaboration is a very inside the movement issue as well, right? It took a long time to nurse the very diverse network and network interests and priorities to come to one common decision on one fight. We were going to make this issue the fight for COP. You, all the members of the network could do their own work, but we were going to unite around this. Yeah. Make it the litmus test. 
And we called it the escalation strategy. And we did it, Barbara. Yeah, I know. We did it. Right? I mean, we, it was beyond our expectations. We just decided, come, you know, how I, what are we going for this? It will not be ignored. And it could not be ignored. So yeah. we literally, for the first time, went into a cop, ignored the fact that it wasn't on the official agenda and made it an agenda. Yeah. So Can you say a little bit more about how you did that? Because normally, I mean, indeed, civil society looks at what the agenda is and formulates their sort of yeah. demands and, and meetings around that. How do you put something on the agenda which is not there? By making it impossible to ignore. Hmm. By doing that big public pressure, by building the coalitions, by getting a united voice, whether we were inside or outside. You, it was almost like you adopted a mantra and... Then we got really amazing and interesting new allies in philanthropies with the Scottish government, mm -hmm. Sturgeon. The media was forced to understand loss and damage. And so mainstream media was covering stories of, about climate impact and loss and damage, etc. We also talk about dealing with perceived tensions between urgency and inclusion and about inside and outside strategies and how she tries to shift power within her own organization. You can't change things if you don't have the investment in the building of power on the ground. So the two have to come together. If you do the one, if you take this short-term urgent approach, you also have to be absolutely clear that you doing this at the risk of not achieving justice. You can have a technical solution. People can find technical solutions for the climate crisis. There's all kinds of ridiculous false solutions emerging, et cetera, et cetera. And if that's all you're caring about, emission reductions, which you must care about, right? The impact on those who are least responsible. But if that's your only approach, you're not going to achieve justice. So fundamentally, We have to recognize when you make your choice about, I just want to be on the inside, I want to find the technical solutions, etc. You're literally sacrificing the very people that you claim you are acting in the interest of. Because justice is not achieved if those very people are not engaged, not involved, or at decision-making tables. How is it that you are trying to maybe build this awareness within the Khan Network, which is such a wide variety of organizations. Well, when I joined, we made a decision in the network that we're going to shift to the bottom. So we're now a bottom-up, no-driven network. We will take our leadership and guidance and our strategy from the bottom, not this top-down, mainly UNFCCC-focused organization. So bottom-up. Secondly, we decided we're going to absolutely actively resource our Global South nodes. So we literally have a little regranting with very tiny funds. We're not a big, you know, we're not a large funded organization network and we're shifting resources. So we shift resources and power to the global South. It's done amazing things, right? Our global South nodes, for example, had volunteers as coordinators, did not earn a salary. While in our global North nodes, they You had big offices, big secretariats. You know, they were earning a salary. Just a simple, that inequity cannot exist in our network. So we have a dedicated program 
to resource our Global South networks for that voice to be valued and heard. I also asked Farhana to say a bit more on how she is putting these insights on the importance of movement building in practice, starting with her own decision to join Extinction Rebellion. I can really trace back my switch and my journey, which I'm still in, um, to around 2016. And in 2016, we negotiated the Paris Agreement, and I had spent, honestly, five years full-time doing nothing but that. And I was exhausted. I was burnt out. I was tired. There was this huge disillusionment with politicians and with the treaty-making process. Like, we've just expended, like, so much energy. We put all our faith in this agreement, and now it's going to be kicked aside. And just holding it together is going to be difficult. So I thought, you know, the best thing I can do in this situation is put my body on the line and follow the example of so many others who have said, let's do movement building, let's do the longer term nurturing, and let's put down roots and build a much stronger movement. So whether it was 350 to Greenpeace to mainly Southern Allies to mainly then Black Lives Matter, which was also starting to increase, whether it was the gender justice movement. We had so much to learn from these longer term movements. So that's where I sort of shifted. That's how I joined Extinction Rebellion. It was a very principled, in the end, when I look back on it, well-researched and quite a longing for me to do something that was different. And I think by that time, and I have to be very honest, not everyone has the privilege and the luxury and the ability to do nonviolence civil disobedience. We need a diversity of tactics. That's always, you know, the case. But in, in the case of climate, because the original knowledge about climate came from scientists and came from sort of think tanks, we over-concentrated our strategy in that. We thought that the insider, the scientists and the lawmakers, and then we added the economists, by the way, that, you know, we needed, mm -hmm. you know, that the sort of that that would be enough. We didn't feel that we needed to even talk to people, you know, let alone inform them, yeah. let alone engage them in what sort of decisions were needed to make these big transformational changes. So I do look back and think, wow, we just forgot about people. <laughs> you know, we didn't engage with people at all. Behaviour change is massively possible if it's done, you know, on the basis of trust and in the basis of buy-in from all sections of society. So, um, yeah. yeah, I feel that that was really missing. And not just XR, it was our young people all over the world, whether it was Fridays for Future or Sunrise or a hundred different groups in the global south, actually, these narratives started to sort of merge actually much more. And I think, as I said, the Black Lives matter movement and the gender movements then were very deft, very um, good at linking the systemic problem of climate change with other injustices. But I do look back and I think, wow, that was probably the most impactful one year of my life. Farhana made another shift over the past years. She started to develop more local initiatives, including in her own neighborhood. One of these is the Camden Think and Do Hub a pop-up space bringing together people for bottom-up sustainability solutions. What I was trying to pioneer also was to bring climate and biodiversity and wilderness and, you know, the circular economy, the regenerative economy down to scale. Like, what does it look like if nothing in my neighbourhood changes as a result of all these big concepts? I want something to look different, feel different, you know. So I feel like... Um, 
the experiments was to try and, you know, create inclusive spaces, like really inclusive spaces. It was really interesting to hear from Tasneem and Farhana how they are trying to change the landscape they are working in. So before we close off, I asked both of them what other advice they have for those of us working for climate justice and those keen to see radical inclusion and for all voices to be heard. What to be mindful of moving forward? What homework do we have? I think everyone in the climate movement should be as active locally as they are in, in policy and national and global policy. And, and, you know, I found a lot of my colleagues literally think it's not as important or not as glamorous or, oh, someone else will do that. That attitude has to change. It's somehow more glamorous to do the global stuff than it is to do the local stuff. We in the climate movement have to learn from that and incorporate that thinking all the time. How do we include working class communities? How do we include people who are running you know, fish and chip shops and grocery shops 24 hours a day. I think that these are just questions which we have to keep asking ourselves and invent practices that are as diverse and as equal as possible. And I guess my most important insight, and especially applying it to the Camden situation, which I saw firsthand, that, you know, sometimes it's better to stop something. When it becomes basically white and middle-class led, And in Camden, you know, our borough is 40% black and ethnic minorities, huge levels of deprivation. If something is continuing and it's essentially privileged and white people leading it, that should just stop. They are no longer reflecting the community that they're part of and they're no longer serving that community well. In the end, you're disempowering someone and you're not letting that person, you know, and that community make their own choices and come to the table. So I feel like actually some of the norms that we need to shift to now in nerdy governance, you know, nerdy language, is to stop, is to say, look in the room now. Look at who is actually making the decisions and for whom. And stop. Because if you're not fully representative, you can no longer continue. So I think that applies everywhere. So I think the only choice you have is to look at how you've then benefited certain groups, certain communities, certain geographies, certain classes benefit far, far more. They have a much easier ride than others. And I feel that that's the cusp, that's the heart of what I'm trying to now in my own work. It surface that understanding and make people act on it without making them feel guilty or bad or give up, frankly. It's a lifelong battle to gain justice. And each year, each month, each year, each generation will gain something and, you know, our work will carry on. So I think that long-term view also is a really important anchor, which has often been missing. We've often thought, oh yeah, if only we can get this campaign, you know, this will tip the whole thing. I asked Tasneem the same question on next steps, including in her own organization. And also what inspires her moving forward? You know, I'm a big believer in conflict. Not to exercise conflict, but to have it out. We tend to all want to be diplomatic. We don't want to rock boats. But that's when you actually miss the truth and the tensions. And so I believe putting things on the table for absolute robust debate and discourse is important. So we've been putting tough things on the table of our discussions in CAN, whether it's equities and fair shares, 
whether it is the decoloniality piece, anti-racism, et cetera, et cetera. We put the big hard stuff on the table nowadays so that people can't ignore it. Let's not pretend that we're living in a, you know, you know, we're all in this together. We all have the same views. We all have the same values. And once you start interrogating and then you ask people, now take the next step, let's take action about this. Then you know where the differences will lie. And then, you know, you've got work to do. Understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's why I believe bring things out. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Let's get into the real issues and debate. You're willing to have on. the tough conversations exactly. also. What inspires you or, or gives you hope moving forward, making sure that we get the justice into the climate agenda? Yeah. What gives me hope is the fact that people are at least having the rhetoric. You know, that's a starting point. The rhetoric is there, just like climate, climate, climate became an agenda. The rhetoric on justice, well, at least climate justice has now been adopted by a kind of big mainstream network like ours. Can never used to talk about climate justice. It's on our agenda. It's in our charter. So the just transition, every government is talking about the just transition. We obviously mean very different things about justice, of course, but at least it's there. The concept, the notion of justice is out there in the mainstream rhetoric. It is up to us to ensure that the substance, the content, the direction of all of these concepts are in fact real and meaningful and not just a captured concept, right? Because that's what happened. Concepts are captured, especially progressive concepts. And so we have to do, again, the hard work of ensuring that they remain true to what is meant by climate justice. And with that important reminder, we close off for today. It was already said by Tessa in episode two, there is loads of work to do. And Tasneem and Farhana shared relevant experiences and practical ideas on some of the biggest strategic questions we face. Yes, their stories really resonated with what we heard in earlier episodes, from the importance of building and asserting people power, of daring to be bold and putting your body on the line, to smart use of the healthy tensions between insider and outsider roles. They also really make me think about what more I can do. And we thank Tasneem and Farhana for joining us. Please check out their work as there's so much more than we could have included here. Thank you for listening to today's episode and to this Climate Justice series. If you haven't heard the stories and wisdoms of Elizabeth, Tessa, Vicky, and Chihiro yet, we highly recommend you to check them out. We think it was a pretty amazing journey and so relevant to the challenges we face today. Only by addressing inequalities and climate change can we achieve climate justice. Our conversations show we know so much about how to do that. And it's really up to all of us to take that forward and build, join, support inclusive movements. We leave inspired and hope you do too. And if you enjoyed the conversations, please subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. We would love for more people to join in and we need your help with that. Check out the resources in the show notes and of course, watch this space as we are preparing for our next series. Ciao. Waheri.